All right. Well, again, it's an honor and a pleasure to be with you here. Uh, I was just regaling uh, Rick in particular and Kathy a little bit with my stories of growing up in London, Ontario, across the lake, and growing up in the late 60s and early 70s in the pre-satellite era with pirated American uh, TV signals from exotic locations like Erie, PA, and Cleveland, which seemed almost like Oz to me when I was growing up because it was so big and, and, and uh, there just seemed to be so many people there. I was in a small town, of course, and the city I was in then has become a lot bigger. But at the time, uh, grew up across from Ohio, have great affection for the state, and again, I'm really happy to be back here at Ohio State with such good friends, and thank you for coming out today. Well, today what I'm going to talk about is a chapter from a book that's coming out, the one that was mentioned a moment ago by Rick. It's a collaborative effort. I have two other uh, editors involved with me. My chapter in the book on offensive realism is about elaborating offensive realism. And let me tell you what I plan to do, more or less my plan of attack for today. I'm going to start with an overview of what's going on with efforts to move realism forward. I'm then going to compact into a fairly short discussion criteria for theoretical progressiveness that I developed and put forward in a 299-page book six years ago. Not much time to get through it, but I'm delighted to tell you it was off the Ohio State University Press, so it's got to be good. And that'll then give you a sense of the context for how I evaluate something like offensive realism as a theory. I then question mark strange bedfellows. Talk about the problematic role of realism in relation to the concept of rationality. They're, really, they're not getting along very well, so to speak, but they end up together anyway, and I talk about how we have to adjust our thinking if we want to move realism forward about the role of rationality. Then I get more directly to what is offensive realism. That's a very short discussion, because I'm going to assume some general familiarity with what the theory's all about, but for the few who might not have seen it or had much contact with it, I'll just give you a basic sense of what it's all about. The center of this talk, and probably the most controversial part, especially if John Mearsheimer were here with us today, or arguably other realists are around, uh, and, and uh, I consider myself a realist, by the way, but uh, something of a troublemaker and iconoclast on these kinds of issues, I'm going to talk about the uncertain micro-foundations of offensive realism and try to persuade you that realism can really go nowhere fast until these issues are resolved. It's extremely important from a scientific point of view to rehabilitate the micro-foundations of realism. I think they're very troubled. And then finally, what way forward? Some general conclusions about what I think we ought to be doing next as a result of the preceding analysis. Okay, on then to this overview. Contemporary realism is, if you will, oh, Good. Oh, here we go. All right, thank you. And I hit the left one on this to make it work, right? The left mm -hmm. side. Thanks very much. Contemporary realism consists of a controversial family of theories, and I see three basic requirements in order to move it forward. First, the diversity of realisms that we encounter reflect a number of causes. There are a range of reasons for it. Realism is old, it's been around for thousands of years, if you will. 
And as a result, it has poorly specified micro foundations, partially because of that, partially because of other things. But I think that something has to be done about that. I'm going to get into the details of how that operates with respect to offensive realism in particular. But it's an accusation that could be hurled at just about any version of realism, past, present, and arguably future, unless something is done about that. Without properly specified micro-foundations, as I put it, and as I describe it later, we cannot obtain a logically consistent set of propositions with which to work. Second key point, realist scholarship should strive for determinate predictions by accepting, and in fact, he's not here to fight with me, but he'll, he'll argue with me in print at some point or another. Randy Schweller and I have debated this point on and off for some time, and uh, I very much respect his, his well-put point of view on it. Rational choice already plays an underdeveloped role in thinking about great power decision-making. So much like Ocho Cinco with the Cincinnati Bengals, he's already there whether you want him or not, and you've got to figure out what to do with him. The football fans will get that joke. And rational choice, I argue, is already there within realism, whether realism wants it or not, as we will see, it's already present, whether it is used effectively or ineffectively is the choice to make. Third key point, and here I also distance myself from some very good friends who are in my own edited volume, the one to which I refer, as the case of offensive realism will show, power politics has more of a future through elaboration of its systemic form. So in a sense, you can read my lecture today, my presentation, as a fairly strong rejection of neoclassical slash neo-traditional realism. You will see why I'm coming at it from that direction as we move forward. I'm going to argue in favor of a systemic variant, and I'm going to put on my hat for a moment, actually grow a beard, because if he was here, you'd see his, his huge and impressive beard. John Vasquez has made this point better than I ever will in a series of very high-profile books and articles over the last 20 or so years in that neo-traditional slash neoclassical expositions start off at risk of collapse from being a house of cards because of the extraordinary number of highly contradictory assumptions they entail. In other words, the good news is they've got micro-foundations. The bad news is that if you take together the totality of the micro-foundations, some critics might say that it looks more like a Tower of Babel than a discourse. So I'm making an argument in favor, if you will, of starting from systemic elaboration rather than more actor or foreign policy variants of realism, as in the starting point will actually matter in terms of our chances for getting to a desirable end point. Okay, offensive realism is new, and I think it's fair to say it's prominent, gets mixed reviews like everything in our field, but one of the key tests for a theory to pass is whether or not anybody's paying attention and bothering to criticize it. Well, this one, uh, you know, honorable mention here on this, next to the clash of civilizations and a few other things, how much criticism is directed at any given theory or framework that's more extensive than what offensive re realism has received. It essentially passes the controversy test. So if I were to talk about any particular kind of realism today, 
and whether it could be improved or might be worth working with further, this one passes a very basic kind of test. Well, the idea out there in offensive realism, not surprisingly, is that an offensive disposition exists as the norm among great powers. And great powers just have this characteristic. And I'll show you a cover of Mearsheimer's book in a moment, but this theory is normally credited to him. It perhaps was latent in some earlier expositions. But he tells us that what's going on is that great powers are behaving this way. They want to take the offensive, so to speak, because they need to. And furthermore, and perhaps even more controversially, this is a sound guide to policy. As in, you'd better be an offensive realist if you're a great power if you want to stick around for very long. Here's the book, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. Within the lexicon of system-oriented realist theories, the most famous, or depending on your point of view, infamous, is structural realism, right? This is Waltz in the old 1979 book with all the neat little flags on the cover. I always liked that part of it in particular. Once you get inside of it, people have more mixed reactions. But for the sake of argument, next to Waltz's structural realism and some other spin-offs or variants on it, the other game in town at the system level is, in fact, the Mearsheimer framework they are the competitors at the system level, and there are a bunch of other competitors fighting it out for championship uh, leading status within more, if you will, the neoclassical side of the paradigm. Let me now talk about what's in my old book. I'm going to try to do about 300 pages in five minutes. Uh, that's probably about the right amount of time for this, and that much of it would be off topic. But in particular, one of the arguments I make in my book is that for those of us in a field like IR, it makes much more sense when we're trying to evaluate theories to focus on empirical problems rather than empirical content. And as the old joke goes, I think Colin Elman was the first one to put it in print, with time you can become lactose intolerant, right? That there are weaknesses and problems with his framework and you want to talk about something to take a long time to get through, it would be Lakatos's exposition on scientific progress. But here's the simple point of difference between myself and Lakatos. His emphasis is on empirical content, as in theories are like buckets, and you want to fill them up with things that have been demonstrated in some way. An alternative framework that I develop, and I borrow from some other philosophers of science to do it, is that we would want to talk about empirical problems instead and solving them because we can do this and we can do it incrementally because here's a question to which there is no obvious answer. Who can say in practice how much empirical content a theory might have in relation to how much ultimately could be achieved? You tell me. What does the denominator look like in that sense? Where is the measurement for empirical content? Solving an empirical problem, on the other hand, is more directly identifiable. We can articulate these things as questions. We can have a race between and among the theories to see who is describing, explaining, and predicting the world better. In my book, I get into what these terms mean in more technical ways, but suffice it to say that they have meanings that are close to intuition. 
So, for instance, describing an empirical problem could be articulating it, as in, what are the causes of war? Or more specifically, what are the causes of major power war? And we could keep asking these questions and kind of gradually and incrementally answering them in whole or in part and build, if you will, problem solving that way. That's what I'm arguing for. The way in which I evaluate offensive realism reflects that frame of reference. So progress, once we've taken away this sort of unanswerable business of who's got more empirical content in an IR theory as opposed to whom, we can ask ourselves about a particular kind of trade-off. And that is the trade-off between how much a theory is accomplishing vis-a-vis -vis empirical problems that it addresses as opposed to its degree of complexity. So think of this, if you will, as I do for the moment, like a ratio. How much are you getting done divided by how complicated your framework is? If we had time to go through examples in the natural sciences, I would submit that the victories of one paradigm over the other in the history of science have generally been about that ratio. It's not that the losers can't explain anything anymore. It's just that the way they're doing it is getting so much more complicated than the winners. The winners begin to attract more attention uh, in a sociological sense, like the old classic Kuhn book on the advancement of science. You win by gaining adherence and gaining control over a discipline. Offensive realism, here's an unusual criticism, right? You're not expecting this one perhaps is too simple. Most of the time, theories fall apart and go nowhere because they're too complicated. My argument is going to be that an optimal ratio between the problem-solving part and the complexity part has not been reached, that we can elaborate, if you will, offensive realism just a little bit. We don't need to do that much more with it to make it a much better and more effective theory than it is now. System-level theory in this criterion of mine, this sort of numerator versus denominator thing, starts off with an advantage. And here's where I put Vasquez back into the story again. What he tells you at extraordinary length and with great respect to his respondents, I think decisively, and I think he wins this debate, is that most variants of realism have a big fat denominator in this sense. They have very high levels of internal complexity and in order to get anywhere, these neoclassical approaches, the foreign policy approaches in particular, have to build in way too many assumptions, too many, if you will, ad hoc and highly specified statements about when they work and when they don't, and how they work and how they don't. And as a result, they don't really get any momentum and they end up looking weak on this criterion. What I argue is that a careful elaboration of offensive realism not changing it much, just a little bit, will make it more effective in addressing the overarching empirical problem that all the theories about from realism want to talk about. They all want to talk about as their most significant and central empirical problem, the causes of war. And that's what I'll focus on the rest of the way. And I don't want to get in, and I'm happy to take these kinds of questions, more esoteric questions about how I measure these things and what constitutes an empirical problem or what doesn't. I'm going to save that if people want to ask about that, but I'm assuming people are more interested in getting down to business and talking more about offensive realism in particular. We're almost ready to get there, but I need a little bit more of a front end. 
and that's realism and rationality. Once again, back to Vasquez, who is the principal gadfly who goes after the realists in his classic book, The Power of, Pol Power of Politics, two editions on that one. And what he gets into, and many other critics have done the same thing, uh, Cohane and Martin and a, an essay they have, I could cite a whole bunch of other people to you, say, we can't figure out what role realism reserves for rationality. And here's the interesting paradox. I've researched this pretty extensively. I've only got time to give you a couple of examples. And he's not here today, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be Randy Schweller for a moment here. Here we go. Here's a great quotation from him that really puts forward one side of the argument. Realism's hardcore of assumptions do not, contrary to conventional wisdom, include rationality. Indeed, both Hans Morgenthau and Kenneth Waltz considered the preeminent theorists of modern-day realism reject the claim that states necessarily act rationally to achieve intended goals, which themselves may not be rational in terms of the actual opportunities and constraints presented by the external environment in which they are embedded. As in, no way. Uh, Randy, of course, being an extremely distinguished realist, is in a pretty good position to know where people from the school of thought are thinking about things. I could have thrown quotations from other people. Some of you may have seen Chris Lane's work over the years. He has a chapter in our edited volume as well. And if Chris were here, he would say something that sounded just like that as well, as in no way, we, we don't want this. This is not part of our, if you will, theoretical apparatus. Now what's fascinating is the absolute reversal in perceptions from outside the paradigm. If you start looking at very smart people who've written books about realism as critics and who are trying, I think, as Annette Freyberg and on, who I'll mention in a moment, does to be fair, to try to accurately portray what the realists are saying, Freyberg and on, in her superb book from a few years ago, I think it came off SUNY or NYU, it's realism and rational choice to her after reading every major work in the field that's realist are particularly compatible. She sees them as being, in fact, not strange bedfellows, but obvious bedfellows. Paradigmatic progress for realists requires them to resolve this fascinating paradox, as in they see themselves, for the most part, as opposed to rational choice, whereas those from outside see them as using it all the time. I have an idea about why this is going on, and by the time my talk is completed, you may come around to the same point of view if you haven't already thought of it this way. The reason it's rejected is that rationality to realists who tend to prefer traditional, historical, interpretive, case-oriented scholarship entails a lot of mathematical baggage. As in, we all know that people don't sit around calculating probabilities in the way that a rational choice model represents them as doing. We sort of know that descriptively. That's substantive rationality. And based on American foreign policy over the years, other countries, whatever, it's fair to say that decision makers don't look like that in practice. But do they look, in a more qualitative sense, like they're reacting to system-level constraints, like they engage in some degree of self-interest calculation before they act? Well, now that's something different. You could have rational choice, if you will, light without all the game theory, mathematical baggage, et cetera, all of those things. I think 
what they're doing is talking past each other. I came to that conclusion some time ago. But now when I introduce offensive realism more directly, oops, what we'll find as we move forward is that until those aspects that are rational choice related that are about micro foundations are resolved more effectively, the theory underperforms and its weaknesses are going to be directly connected to that problem. Okay, what is offensive realism? This will be fairly short. Great powers are primed for offense and all want to be the hegemonic quotation right out of Mearsheimer. And five principal assumptions are there. The theory is pretty parsimonious, right? This is not a huge denominator we have right now. Anarchy, great power, possession of offensive military capabilities, a lack of certainty about others' intentions, survival as a goal, and rational actors. Mearsheimer's actually an exception within this paradigm. He is saying, sure, I, I am adopting rational choice. But the interesting thing is once he lets it in there with his other assumptions, what I'm going to show you is that it takes him to a different place than he imagines. It's also fair to say it's an original idea. It's a real departure at the system level from structural realism. But we're going to find three issues that shape the rest of my talk when I get into the core of what I'm doing right here. Three problems that create inconsistencies and issues. First, the theory's motivational or human nature-related assumptions. I'm going to talk about problems there. Second, which factors enter into the calculus of survival? And third, how does offensive realism deal with bilateral versus multilateral calculations about how security is derived? Okay, question of human nature is the first of these three things we're going to talk about. Another quotation from Morgenthau, which I won't bother to read. Uh, excuse me, a quotation from Mearsheimer about Morgenthau is in no way. I am not buying into those kinds of fire and brimstone things that people usually cite from Hans Morgenthau about why you get all of this depressing, or in the language of Mearsheimer, tragic behavior from great powers. Well, uh, one of your other colleagues, quite well known for this statement, anarchy is what states make of it, right? That's been said a few times. And if states are not inherently aggressive, Morgenthau style, then why should they fear each other? This insight works in this context as well. Offensive realism has no good answer to this question. Why all this offensive deployment disposition? You cannot get there, I argue at some length in my, my paper, my chapter. You cannot get to where Mearsheimer wants to go with this rejection of Morgenthau. He needs not just anarchy, but he also needs fear in order to get the result that he's after. Now, oops, sorry, hang on here. Uh-oh, hang on. Sorry, guys. The problem that we have with this is that the, we, as soon as we go down to the micro level about what people are thinking or acting or doing, that's where we begin to run into problems. And in moving forward now to the calculus of survival, oops, I think I missed a slide. I'm sorry. Hang on here for a second. I think I've missed something. Give me just a second. I'm not sure why, but I seem to be missing a slide. Yep. 
okay, doesn't matter really. Offensive realism, in terms of the calculus of survival, calculations should focus on a maximization of relative power. That's supposedly what you're doing. We're into the second problem here now, and we get more specific as we go along. Morgenthau talks about a state surveying its environment, and what it really zeroes in on is, in fact, the capabilities. It's not about intentions at all. It's about the capabilities that states have. But I argue that this also contradicts the rationality postulate, which he himself says that he's got in there. For instance, why would you ignore the advice you obtain from intelligence estimates, diplomats in a dangerous world? Consider Germany vis-a-vis Austria-Hungary and its behavior toward that state and France coming down the pike toward World War I. We all know much more attention is paid to what France is doing than Austria-Hungary. It's a very simple example, a surprisingly simple one, because of beliefs about whose intentions are good or bad. There's so many examples, I could go on at length about this, that it's obvious that they're paying attention to intentions and that they should do so. Offensive realism, in my judgment, unjustly assumes a perfect correlation between military capabilities and intentions. Instead, offensive realism should be adjusted you can still have this kind of depressing sense of things that the others have bad intentions towards you, that capabilities are dangerous, by saying that you're more sensitive in probability calculations to negative rather than positive information about rivals. That's a simple way of getting around the problem. Let me then reformulate the expression that I think is embedded within Mearsheimer. Maximize your own relative power among the great powers, That's formula one, if you will. I don't mean racing for the moment. I mean utility functions. Instead, second would be more accurate as to what he really ends up describing and talking about, threat combined with opponent's military superiority. There are plenty of problematic cases that we could draw attention to with respect to how great powers have behaved, I've only got time for a couple of examples. The United States around the middle of the 19th century, I have another long quotation here from Mearsheimer about it really not needing to expand any further. It doesn't need to go any further than it is. And therefore, why did it not obtain more territory? Well, actually, it does. It goes out and obtains Alaska right after the period of the Civil War. I've got some old cartoons for you. Uh, Seward's folly, that sort of thing. In fact, so many times with the historical examples one works through in this book, you see what he claims to be an example of offensive realism in action, but to explain it, you've really got to bring in other factors. The main reason, from his theory's point of view, if you elaborate it and work it forward, that the United States might not engage in more dramatic acts of conquest is to try to prevent a European counter-coalition. Emerging. The United States gets so powerful that it begins to provoke the other side of the Atlantic. Is it possible that they were thinking this way? Well, it probably makes more sense than some of the, again, unjustified examples that are used to support the theory in its initial incarnation. Here's the third big problem that's out there, bilateral versus multilateral calculations. By the time this part of the discussion is done, I'll be talking about how I've made another adjustment to the calculus, if you will, of offensive realism. 
Consider Anglo-Dutch warfare in the 17th century. Mearsheimer applauds this and talks about how the naval, the bill that was passed in 1651, which really hurt Holland enormously, damaged their economic situation. It also, of course, was very harmful to England itself. In the book, Mearsheimer talks about why this is a good thing. It's a good policy, as in they were the rival state at the time. They're very threatening. Notice the language I'm using. And their capabilities need to be reined in. But at the same time, the policy you use, this 1651 Navigation Act, is very damaging to England itself. Now we have a problem that gets me talking about bilateral versus multilateral calculations. When you're trying to decide what to do in foreign policy, you're obviously beyond the bilateral in making calculations. So if you had another state you're dealing with, you have some kind of problem with them, sure, you might want to diminish their capabilities, but wouldn't you also be balancing the immediate gain from that against what you might open up in terms of personal vulnerability to other states? As in, England lost ground because of this. It lost ground, if you will, to everybody else but Holland. So there's a bit of a boxing in here. Unless you assume that the threat from Holland was the only one of any significance in the world for any foreseeable period of time, a very touchy assumption, then it would make more sense if you have a rationality postulate in your theory to look multilaterally, as in calculate beyond the immediate dyad, as our, our number crunching friends would call it, and look at the world as a whole. I now argue for another revision of the calculus of offensive realism. Instead of just minimizing threat and capability for a particular state, minimize the sum of threat combined with capability posed by the other great powers. This expression, arguably, for me, is more complete. And if you logic out those assumptions we started with, it's more consistent with the axioms Mearsheimer puts forward himself. We can relate this to the high-profile debate over balancing versus buck-passing. One of the strengths of offensive realism, noted at some length in the tragedy of great power politics, is you really don't see a whole lot of balancing empirically. The book, in its exposition of the theory, says, hooray, that's very consistent with what we expect. We expect buck-passing because in an, a world of offensive realists, it makes more sense to do what Mearsheimer labels bait and bleed. By bait and bleed, as in get your rivals fighting with each other. What could be a happier situation than two of them quarreling and perhaps coming out of it to your advantage weaker than they were before they started? Oops, hang on, go back again. All righty. Now, if you look at allies of choice, they are less threatening than potential aggressors for reasons that may transcend military capabilities. If you look at it in a completely multilateral way, there may be situations where you want two other countries to fight and weaken themselves, but it's more complicated than that. What if one of the countries involved is a state with whom you have a very low degree of threat perceived that tends to be friendly to you and that's being threatened by somebody else, maybe gobbled up by them. Sometimes we see bait and bleed tactics, and sometimes we don't. 
ironically, the case of England and Holland is you baiting and bleeding yourself, right? If you just look at it that way, England says, we're going to beat up on the Dutch with this Naval Act that we're putting forward, this Navigation Act, and it's going to cost us quite a bit, but we're going to make gains relative to them. Well, how can that be okay when another chapter of the book talks about how you want your foreign policy to be aligned so you can get other states to do precisely what you just did in that instance? The only way you can get away with that is to have a more multilateral calculus. So what I say then is that you have to take the other expression I had put forward and make it more intricate than it had been. It's not just about minimizing threat and capability from any one state, any one rival at the moment. It would be to do so systemically. Now I reach my conclusions. What way forward? I've tried to persuade you that the diverse realisms out there lack sound micro-foundations. I've used the example of offensive realism. I could have worked with any number of others. I've done that in some of my other writings. Vasquez has done it arguably better than anybody, that the house of cards effect is what one gets without working this through more effectively. Now, here's the O. Henry ending, if you didn't anticipate this already. The irony to me is that once you explore its full implications as they are articulated in the theory itself, it ends up looking like a systemic variant of expected utility theory. And if I said that and Mearsheimer were sitting here, he'd probably throw a bowl of soup at me, you know, before he'd even had a drop. But that's what it looks like. If you take the calculus that is implied by his model, it looks a lot like a system-oriented variant of expected utility theory. Now, in this simple 30 minutes or so moving forward, I th you'll tell me if you think my logic is persuasive here. What I think I've made the case for is that system-oriented realist theory, like offensive realism, has the advantage of simplicity. It has the higher ground over neoclassical when it comes to that denominator for scientific progress, as in how complicated is your theory, how much internal complexity is there. The numerator is how much you can explain. My argument here is by some very subtle and fairly nuanced changes in what we would call the calculus of security, the utility function that the realist state is supposed to have, that offensive realism can do a lot better in dealing with anomalies, contradictions that one can easily identify in this book, but without getting so complicated that it collapses under its own weight. Uh, I'm delighted to have had the chance to talk with you about this and uh, look forward to questions, debate, what have you. Thank you.